Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. This is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers all things in what used to be known as the global war on terror, but we now call the Long War. There's quite a long war that's going on in Israel. And of course, we're going to discuss that again today. Joe Trusman, my friend and colleague at FDD, who is also a research analyst for FDD's Long War Journal, will join us. And we also have a guest today, David May. He's uh, the research manager and a senior research analyst at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and is very well versed on all issues related to Israel and the Palestinians. Uh, David, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And Joe, welcome back, as always. Uh, you might have just achieved a co-host status. Uh, so um, you are, you know, at some point you're just, you're part of the podcast. So well, we got a lot to lot to discuss today. Before we get into it, one of the things we want to talk about today is the, the bigger picture. You know, how is Israel being pressured internationally? Um, how are foreign countries looking at this issue and some other things that we'll, we'll discuss? But before we do, as we do always, Joe, give us a real brief update on the tactical situation um, in Israel's ground invasion in Gaza, what's going on up at the north, and any other uh, interesting developments. Right. So what we're seeing is um, pretty much what we've been seeing the last few days, right? Or the last few weeks, uh, Israel continues to move south. I think right now the objective, it's it's been Gaza City, uh, especially the Shifa Hospital, which is reported and, and well-known to be a uh, Hamas command center, specifically underneath the hospital. So uh, I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about Shifa, Gaza City, in the next few days uh, as as Israel continues to uh, dismantle Hamas in Gaza. So um, just a quick update, at least in the, in the past few days, uh, about what's happening earlier this morning. Like, or you could, yeah, yeah, earlier this morning, rather, uh, the IDF published a statement saying that they eliminated a anti-tank uh, uh, commander, anti-tank missile commander belonging to Hamas. He's just one of those, he's just one of many commanders that have been eliminated. All right. It's they're not, he's not like a top guy like Sinwar or Dave. Uh, but I mean, he's still a piece of the puzzle, right? In the, the military hierarchy of Hamas. So he's just somebody, he's he's important enough to mention. I'll just say that. So uh, which is uh, always a good thing for the IDF and the Israeli uh security uh, agency, but uh, so anyway, so that, that that's one oh, thing. Joe, before you, you go on with that, I'm yeah. going to just make a yeah. quick comment about that. You yeah, know, people uh, for years have been asking me, well, what should I read um, uh, about, you know, going after terrorist organizations? And the um, book by Mark Bowden, Bowden, I forget the name of the book, but it's the, the one where he's killing Pablo Escobar. And he talks about this. Um, they Part of the strategy for the U.S. and the Colombians was to go after those mid middle managers, which you could call them, right? The these were the for in the case of Escobar, it was his, his Sicarios and and others, you know, the got finance guys. They're the key part. Um, you want to isolate that senior leadership, you got to go after that middle management. Um so yeah, so that's what the Israelis are doing. It's very clear. It's something, it's it's right. it's a lot of work. And yeah, the book is uh, thanks, David. It is Killing Pablo, the hunt for the world's greatest outlaw. I highly recommend that if you want to understand the you know fighting against uh, terrorist organizations. It's not 
very intuitive, but uh, it makes a lot of sense once you read the book. And it's a good read as well. Go on, Joe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll be uh, as quick as possible here. Uh, in the northern front, uh, Hezbollah continues to launch attacks. Again, they're just below really the threshold of an all-out conflict. So they're just they're mo- they're mostly co- concentrate they're com- mostly concentrating on uh military israeli military positions a civilian did die i think it was yesterday um in one of the attacks so one of the hezbollah attacks in in northern israel so that's not worthy to mention also this morning we don't know for sure yet because the idf hasn't said but um there was a drone uh I don't know if you want to call it, a, describe it as an attack, but a drone exploded uh, on a school in southern Israel, in, in Elat. It's, it's like a Red Sea resort. It's a city uh, right there in the Red Sea. So, um, and we know that the Houthis have been trying to, have been attempting to attack Elat on several occasions. So, uh, but th- this may be a Houthi attack. We don't know yet. At this moment, the IDF hasn't said it was a Houthi attack, nor has the Houthis uh, published a statement uh, today saying that they attacked successfully attacked a lot. So that's something to note. And lastly, a little bit of activity in the West Bank today, specifically in Janine. Uh, about uh, I think the last time I saw about uh, at least a statement from Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades. Five of their uh, members have been killed by uh, IDF uh, troops in Janine. I don't uh, don't know the details of why the the, the uh, IDF was in Janine. Probably just the usual anti-terrorism raids. Of course, we know Janine is a hotbed of terrorist activity. Uh, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades, and other armed groups uh, operate heavily there. So it's not a surprise that there's a lot of uh, fighting there. So at least five members have been killed. Uh, so that's, that's it for now, just quickly as well. I don't see this as like a, um, another front opening up in the West bank. All right. Uh, as far as the West bank is concerned, post October 7th, as of now, I don't see a huge, um, jump in activity of, uh, terrorist organization. So, which is good news, right? Because right now Israel's just managing the fronts. It's managing Hezbollah. It's managing the Houthis. It's managing the West bank. It's managing Syria. Uh, so it's focused on Gaza right now. So, so far, so good with at least that front. Yeah, excellent point, Joe, that the Israelis really are concerned about this ballooning past Gaza. I think they've done a pretty good job of it. It's a really it's got to be frustrating with Hezbollah, particularly launch and, and other groups launching attacks from the north. But, um, you know, it, it's definitely to Israel's advantage at this point in time and keeping the bulk of the fighting confined to to Gaza. Uh, so David, I'm going to turn to you now. Give us your impressions one month in with how is the international community reacting to this? Is Israel beginning to be, or, or should I say, are countries like the US and, and European countries beginning to, because con- they're the ones that really count here, beginning to constrain Israel in its ability to wage war in Gaza? First off, thanks for having me. Uh, and uh Oh, it's great. Yeah, pleasure to be here. And just wanted to just add a note on a lot that it's uh, Israel's Vegas. So whatever happens there stays there. (laughs) So too with drone attacks. Um, But uh, yeah, so we're just over one month in after the uh, Hamas attacks of October 7th. And Israel is really fighting two wars here. It's fighting one on the ground uh, military uh, campaign against Hamas, trying to uh, evict them from the territory. Uh, and it plays into the second war that they're fighting, which is the public relations battle uh, to give it the time and space that it needs to operate. 
whenever Israel is attacked, uh, it has a window uh, of opportunity. However long uh, the United States and the and Europe and other international partners wait until they put a lot of pressure on Israel to constrain itself. So that's why we've been in this situation since 2006, 2007, that every few years uh, a new battle erupts because the battle is never, the war is never finished. It's just uh, different battles and iterations of the same war. So uh, we've been seeing this uh, at, at, at the beginning, the United States really gave Israel a lot of time and space. And this is just something uh, so unparalleled in Israel's history. And uh, it's also just in terms of uh, egregious acts of uh, egregious atrocities, uh, something that uh, the world has barely ever seen. Uh, so Israel got more time and space this time. But uh a few weeks in, uh, the calls for a ceasefire, or if uh, you want to make it sound a little more palatable, then you would call it a humanitarian pause. Uh, there's some distinctions, but not many. Uh, and the fear is that if a uh, humanitarian pause turns into a ceasefire, then Israel will not be able to achieve its objectives and it will leave Hamas there on its border uh, as a viable threat. And so this is not just a, a far-flung terrorist group uh, thousands of miles overseas. This is a, a group that's kilometers away from Israeli civilian centers. And we saw on October 7th what happens uh, when they're allowed to roam free. So on the American front, the pressure is starting to uh, become a little less, uh, a little more pronounced against Israel. But actually just today, uh, or yesterday actually, the deputy prime minister of Belgium has called for sanctions against Israel, uh, which is a pretty uh, drastic step. Uh, especially because Israel is prosecuting its battle against Hamas. And this kind of ties into the uh, kinetic warfare versus the uh, public relations space. Hamas is doing everything possible to ensure uh, additional civilian casualties, both on the Israeli side, but also on the Palestinian side. And so when Israel uh, attacks Hamas fighters and there's unfortunately there's civilian casualties along the way, Israel gets blamed rather than Hamas for putting its fighters and its weapons in civilian areas. And so when the international community is putting this pressure on Israel to halt its fight prematurely against Hamas, they're playing into Hamas's strategy of uh, not allowing Israel to achieve its objectives. I was going to say, I said this from the beginning, it's just sort of like David saying, but Israel, one of the biggest uh, problems it has, it's going to have, is time, right? Just looking at previous conflicts, talk about 2021, for example, 2014, and all the other conflicts in between, right? International pressure starts to grow after a few days, start seeing pressure from allies of Israel, and we start seeing protests, especially in 2014. I remember in 2014, there was protests, you know, in the United States and in other countries uh, during that conflict uh, between Hamas and Israel. And I fully expected that to happen this year. Uh, in this round, but this one's completely different, right? I mean, this is a war. I mean, Israel has declared war, so it's a, it's on a much grander scale, I think. So, uh, so yeah, I think now the pressure is on Israel. Now, are they gonna? Are they willing to buckle? Right? Are they willing to, you know, take the hits? Uh, not only just you know on the battlefield, but on the international stage, and to because they have to achieve their goal here, right? At least in, in the eyes of the Israeli government, they have to eliminate Hamas. This is what they've been saying from the beginning. They have to they have to get rid of them. So, you know, again, I don't know if they're going to be able to just because of all these things, right? Of the international pressure and then. Um, and what's happening on the ground. So we'll see. But yeah, time is not definitely not on the Israel side. That's for sure. 
that clock just begins ticking almost immediately. It took less than a week for the perception to turn against against Israel uh, after this attack. As soon as it began operations in Gaza, um, launching airstrikes against terrorists and terrorist infrastructure against Hamas and other groups. You know, and that typically that clock has been about one to two months um, in previous com- conflicts. And um, yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how Israel weathers the storm, because as we've noted, and David, as you said, there's internally, I don't know that the, the Israelis can allow Hamas, I mean, to to stand or allow, allow whatever, even, even if it isn't Hamas, the next iteration of Hamas. To, to rise from the ashes in Gaza. Now, um, I'm going to turn to a statement that Secretary of State Anthony Blinken made. Uh, this was in the wall. Um, I'm sorry, the Washington Post yesterday. It says, no use of Gaza as a platform for terrorism or other violent attacks. No reoccupation of Gaza after the conflict ends. No attempt to blockade or besiege Gaza. These are very contradictory statements. Would, would you agree with that, David? How is How are you going to prevent Gaza from being used as a platform for terrorism, if at least at some point in time there isn't an occupation of Gaza, even if it's for a year or two years, to stand up whatever is going to replace the governance in Gaza. So I think it's very easy to establish what people are opposed to, what we shouldn't do. But when it comes to solutions of for how Israel should protect its citizens, uh, that's a lot more difficult to clarify a position uh, we saw when Israel withdrew from the territory completely in 2005, uh, it was seen as a peace gesture to the Palestinians, and obviously that is not what Israel received in return. And then uh, even on the right-wing side uh, of Israel, sometimes there was a, a thought that, oh, it's actually a pretty brilliant play if you give them Gaza, but then maybe they'll take more of the West Bank. Uh, in negotiations, they'll have all of Gaza and let's see what they do with it. And they turned it into this bastion of terrorism. So why is Israel going to allow that to exist on, you know, within kilometers of its capital in Jerusalem? Uh, so we've definitely seen that part of it play out. Um, I don't know how you keep Gaza, how you keep uh, residents of Israel, not only within the envelope surrounding Gaza, but anywhere within rocket range or if they're able to break into Israel again. Uh, I don't know how you keep Israelis safe without uh, without getting in there. We, I think you've uh, written about the danger of having a safe haven for terrorists. And if you allow a safe haven for terrorists to exist on Israel's border, it spells doom, not just in Israel, across the globe, wherever you allow that to happen. So there has to be some type of, um, some power that goes in. Uh, obviously, Hamas is not an, an option an option. Uh, the Palestinian Authority doesn't want to have anything to do with the territory. And there's also a lack of legitimacy uh, among Palestinians. They don't believe the Palestinian Authority to be capable or a legitimate representation of their uh, aspirations. Uh, Israel won't be welcome there for sure. Uh, so I just don't know who is supposed to keep the peace there. But just allowing it to be a wild west again is not an option. Yeah, and I, I've heard talk of um, an international peacekeeping force being deployed into Gaza. I think this has been kicked around. I mean, who exactly would do that? And boy, I got to tell you, if the Qataris are involved in discussions on this, um, you know, hold on to your wallet. I can just tell you from Afghanistan with getting the Qataris involved with negotiations with the with the Taliban. 
that isn't going to go well. Um, but, you know, is, is that even a viable option, David? An international peacekeeping force? Would the Israelis accept it? Who would they accept? So if we're going to kind of draw on a parallel situation, we might point to Lebanon and UNIFIL. Uh, it's the United Nations force for, for Lebanon that's supposed to keep the peace and make sure, prevent that uh, Hezbollah is not operating along Israel's border on the north. And uh, unfortunately, to say the least, they haven't lived up to their mandate uh, and they've allowed. Uh, that's quite the understatement, David. But yes, I, I, I leave it to, to you guys to describe exactly how they failed. But uh, needless to say, they've been on the on the border. The, they've allowed Hezbollah to build uh, infrastructure along the border to store weapons throughout there. They don't really hinder uh, Hezbollah's operations in the least bit. And so if that's what we can expect from an international peacekeeping force, uh, the one that we have along Israel's northern border, I'm not sure how much better uh, we should expect anything to come out of Gaza. You can't just leave a, leave a vacuum there, right? You just can't get rid of Hamas and then what? Then another armed group takes over? Like, it just doesn't work right. like that. So, and honestly, I don't think there are many countries that want to get themselves involved in this palestinian israel palestinian conflict right like uh yeah so it's a very good question i don't think anyone has the answers to it uh i'm not sure the israelis have the answer to it right now but um so yeah i i just don't know how this is going to work without some type of force being in gaza on the ground and having some sort of um you know, operating there just to make sure so armed groups don't uh, pop up and, uh, you know, and, and all sorts of other things that have to do with uh, with the situation. So, yeah, I, I, it's just it's complicated for sure, to say the least. Yeah. And, and there's two issues here, right? Who's willing to do it? And then who would the Israelis trust to do it? Well, maybe three. Who would the Palestinians trust to do it? It seems the only country that the Israelis would trust to do it would be the U.S. And I don't think the U.S., is willing to put us, I mean, you would need a significant amount of troops, you know, 2 million people, 140 square miles um, with, you know, the reality is, is Israel, the IDF isn't going to get every terrorist and there's going to be a pop-up. I just can't of, you know, of some armed activity there post the Hamas defeat. I just can't see this administration doing it. Um, the Palestinians certainly would be hostile to the U.S., in my opinion, given what we've seen in the um, from protests and and rhetoric coming out from Gaza and from the West Bank and from Palestinian leaders. And again, I you know, I, I it's just this this one baffles me. I mean, the the day after the defeat of Hamas is probably the biggest problem in this entire conflict. I mean, aside from you know, the humanitarian problems within Gaza right now and, you know, the Israelis, the sacrifice they're making to clear Gaza, you know, Hamas and other terrorist groups from Gaza. Right. Uh, it's, um, I don't know, <laughs> a bunch of I don't knows is basically what we're getting yeah. right now. And uh, um, so, yeah, I, again, I hate saying it. I don't know. <laughs> Listen, you know, one of the things I find in Washington is a lot of people pretend they have the answers when they really don't. It's the, one of the most frustrating things that I've experienced. And for us to say we don't know to, you know, we have to ask these questions in order to try to find solutions. And if we, you know, saying we don't know at this moment is, you know, that's part of the solution. It's the beginning to a solution, at least. 
um, at this point. Along those lines, uh, until we do know, until we do have a good solution, I don't think that we should rule out uh, options that could work. Uh, and so if we're too swift to rule out uh, Israeli uh, forces securing the area for a certain period of time, uh, you know, without any alternative, we don't have any good alternatives. So we just have to work with the solutions that we might have. No, that, that's absolutely right. And I think that's kind of what we're we're getting at here in this conversation. It's the the really the logical answer here is that the Israelis have to occupy Gaza for some period of time. I mean, I guess the hope is that the the Palestinians will after this operation is over, that hopefully they'll be convinced that Hamas isn't in their future, that fighting the Israelis consistently isn't in their future. Um, go ahead. Uh, yeah. So, so the, in the Israeli jargon, there's uh, the idea that you throw a grenade into the mix and it just shuffles things up. It may be a little too, uh, you know, jarring of a term here, but uh, the basic idea is uh, before the war happened, Israeli society was in a different place, uh, both in among uh, Jews, but also within Jews and Arabs in Israel. The just the dynamics were very different than what they are now. And so, too, uh, among the Palestinians, things could change when they see just how devastating Hamas has been for the Palestinians and that the Palestinians need a new direction. Uh, it it should, I would hope, uh, give uh, people more inspiration to go towards a more peaceful route. Uh, that might not be the case. But it also uh, gives the opportunity to show that if Hamas was so so much of a failure in its attempts to uh, lead the Palestinian people uh, by attacking Israel, uh, perhaps the more peaceful route that's mostly espoused by the Palestinian Authority can be uh, a more beneficial option for the Palestinians. So this could uh, be the perfect opportunity once you weaken Hamas to the point where it's no longer such a threat to the Palestinian Authority for them to step up. They, they now have an opportunity and their leaders should step up. Uh, unfortunately, as we've pointed to, the fact that uh, Mahmoud Abbas is now in year, I believe, uh, what is he, in year 19 of a five-year term? He has no internal legitimacy. He also pushes aside any potential, uh, you know, potential threats or successors, uh, meaning that there's not as many capable leaders within the Palestinian Authority. So this would be the opportunity for them to step up into this vacuum and to uh, push the Palestinians towards statehood and towards uh, improving their economic situation. Uh, unfortunately, I don't know that that will be the case, just given the uh, dynamics among Palestinians. Yeah, and you touched upon, uh, and let's let's explore this a little further. the The internal politics within Israel, the reaction um, to the Israeli people after before and before this attack. I know this, having visited Israel twice. There is a a diverse range of opinions on how to deal with the Palestinian um, problem uh, with it, within the Israeli public. Have they essentially united on this issue? Is there still conflict, and what 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 conflicts exist within Israel over this issue? In terms of an end game, uh, I don't think there's there's no unity. There's no clear uh, cohesion in terms of the Israeli uh, consensus on that, uh, but. In terms of viewing the threats coming from Gaza and from Hamas, that across the board uh, has been, it's just, it was a wake up call for a lot of uh, people on the left who saw them 
And not even just on the left, even on the right, they saw Hamas as a moderate force that they could work with compared to some other groups that are less extremist, uh, unfortunately. Uh, that's just the nature of the game uh, in Gaza. Uh, but there there was the idea that uh, they could they, they were a power that, that you could work with. Um, and that just uh, given the facts on the ground, what happened on October 7th, not just the the scale, uh, which is the, the biggest uh, attack on Israel ever, also the uh, biggest, uh, the, the most, uh, the, the biggest massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. And I would also just note that we're uh, currently recording this on the 85th anniversary of Kristallnacht, the uh, beginning of the uh, German, not the beginning, but one of the, the big points in Nazi Germany uh, in terms of attacking Jews, something that we've sadly seen worldwide as a reaction to uh, Hamas's attacks. Uh, but anyways, on the Israeli domestic front, everyone knew how terrible this was in terms of the scope, but then the details that we've seen come out in terms of the savagery, uh, beheadings, rape, uh, just absolutely terrible things. And people who may have not wanted to believe that this was Hamas's, uh, how they operate, uh, this is just how they are. This is how they operate. This is what Hamas will do if they're given the time and space to do that. And so there's a pretty overwhelming consensus within Israel that Hamas cannot continue to operate. They cannot continue to pose that threat. It's not just uh, a deterrence issue. We can't just deter them from acting. We have to completely uh, dis dis disable them. And is this a perception or a view that exists within the Israeli Arabs? What's the no there's a significant portion of Israelis are Arabs. It, it was what around two to three million. Is that correct? Uh, somewhere in that range. It's uh, somewhere to twenty to twenty five percent of Israel's nine million citizens. So there's there, for the most part, um, the reaction uh, day of and in the wake of it uh, has just been a, a unification between. Uh, Israeli Jews and Israeli Arabs. Uh, there were dozens of Israeli Arabs, Muslims who were killed by Hamas when they pleaded for their lives saying that they were Arab or that they were Muslim. Uh, Hamas just saw them as, uh, you know, uh, collaborators and people working with the Jews. Uh, and some, and e even though they were Arabs and they shared uh, a lot of, you know, eth ethnic and cultural ties uh for them it didn't really matter and and also at that point they didn't really care who they were killing they were killing anyone that they saw and so we they killed dozens of uh foreign workers and they are currently holding over 50 uh thai citizens uh captive as well so this is it's really more of a, a battle between you know just people who believe in death and people who believe in life uh, and so on the Israeli Arab side, we, we saw a lot of cooperation. There were just great heroic stories of Israeli Arabs coming to rescue their relatives, but also coming to rescue anyone along the way that they were able to, to rescue. Uh, also just, uh, Israeli Arabs, especially the Bedouin are pr featured prominently in Israel's military. So there are a lot of, uh, stories about their exploits, uh, on the day of and since then in terms of defending the state of Israel. Uh, but also, as, as I mentioned before, this is a time to reevaluate. So right before uh, October 7th, we were in a situation where the Israeli Arabs were facing the worst internal violence uh, in their history. There were over uh, 200 Israeli Arabs killed uh, since January 1st. They felt uh, many of them felt like they were abandoned by the state of Israel. Um, but we saw the dedication of Israeli Arabs to defending the state of Israel. And I guess my hope would be that uh, the is Israeli government you know, uh, reciprocates that dedication. Yeah, absolutely. 
Joe, uh, and on the our final topic, there has been reports that Palestinian journalists actually embedded themselves on October 7th, crossed the border with Hamas and uh, took photographs and videos. And some of these journalists uh, purportedly work for major news or wire services, Reuters, AP, CNN. Tell us a little bit about that. And um, what are your thoughts on that? Right. So there was a report yesterday, I think is uh, by Honest Reporting. I think they first broke it. So that uh, there are reporters based in Gaza that basically went along with uh, Hamas fighters and, and members of other groups into the uh, into the into the communities rather uh, in Israel on October seventh. They were there with them. They were taking photos. They were taking pictures, videos, all that. Uh, and it's true they did because I, I saw it I, I, uh, th- that night. I was watching everything, and I and I came across that. Um, some of these reporters are for Gaza observers, uh, are well known. There's one, uh, Hassan Aslich, and, uh, there's another, there's a few others anyway. So, yeah, so the accusation is that these, uh, that somehow these news organizations colluded with, uh, with these reporters and that they somehow, these Gaza based journalists and that they, that, that, uh, that these organizations knew about. Uh, the attack, right? So, and it and it raises other ethical issues as well, of course. So, which is another story. Um, but so we just got to be careful because I, I I don't I don't know about the the exact links with these organizations with these news media uh, groups, like with the New York Times, for example, or Reuters or whoever. Uh, I don't know how strong those links are between the Gaza-based journalists. And the organization, right? I, I don't know about that. I can't comment about that. So, uh, but I can say that uh, these these journalists were there. They were filming. They were inside Israel. Uh, so, uh, which is uh, is concerning. Also, uh, some years ago, during in 2018, there was uh, there was this thing called the uh, the Gaza March of Return. And it was basically uh, rioting along the security fence between Gaza and Israel. And a lot of uh, uh, these armed groups were taking part in it, okay? They were planning IEDs. They were infiltrating into Israel, uh, doing all sorts of things. Anyways, so one of the journalists, so-called journalists, he would follow these uh, armed groups and film them doing activities, okay? Uh, whether it was launching balloons, incendiary-laden balloons into Israel in, in an attempt to scorch uh, farmland or infiltrate into Israeli territory. This guy would always follow them, right? He'd, he'd, he'd publish video. And then anyways, he ended up, uh, after doing some research on him, uh, after I did some research on him, ended up being a member of Hamas's police as well. So, which is kind of interesting to me. So anyway, um, I think some of these journalists uh, can, there's a possibility that they're connected to Hamas. I mean, like I mentioned, Hassan Aslich, he was there's a there's a photo of him receiving a nice a nice kiss from Yahya Sinwar. So uh, Hamas is uh, you know a leader in Gaza. So it's just interesting. So there appears to be links there, and this is concerning. It's a it's a real ethical. Um, uh, you could just say it, it, something's not right there, right? When I first saw those videos of these these journalists inside Israel, I was like, oh, something's definitely not right here. So. So we'll see. I don't know about the links, to be quite honest with you, but that's the, the the gist of the story right now. And were they identified 
as um, were they identifying themselves as journalists? Were they wearing like a vest or helmet with press, which you normally right. see? I know with two of them, I don't recall seeing them wearing press, right? Even though they're maybe recognized as press to people that obviously know them, right? Uh, I, I, I don't recall them wearing anything that shows that they're press, but you can see them. I mean, they were they were reporting from from there. I mean, I mean, it just depends how you want to see it, right? When you view it, or I mean, is it they're actually reporting or are they doing something else? But th- they were. So I know with two of them, I don't know with the others. So I don't know. This is a, this one's an interesting story. I'll say that. That's for sure. David, any thoughts? Yeah. So, so one thing is that this is not uh, particular to Gaza, but wherever you are uh, a journalist, you work with locals on the ground to get the best stories. And so uh, that will, uh, you know, for one way or another, that will shape the reporting that is done is how the uh, people, um, the local uh, journalists uh, shape the New York Times or Reuters or whatever uh, outlet is is reporting. The other thing to note is that, um, you know, Hamas controls this territory, controls it with an iron fist, and it really uh, is obsessed with uh, the messaging that comes out of this territory. So in the 2014 war, uh, we had there was a tweet by a Wall Street Journal reporter, uh, Nick Casey, uh, talking about Shifa Hospital and saying, he said, I wonder how the Palestinians here would feel about the fact that Hamas is using it as a headquarters. That tweet was quickly deleted uh, because it did not go along with Hamas's preferred narrative. There's also a lot of other examples of journalists uh, reporting something that would have been negative about Hamas and then retracting it, deleting it. Uh, there's uh, strict orders, uh, as far as I understand, uh, on journalists not to film Hamas operatives, not to film them launching rockets, uh, which is uh, very often done from within residential areas. Uh, Hamas will say that that's, you know, it's a tactical thing. You don't want to give up our positions. And so that would be dangerous. But also it would be very damaging to their PR strategy because they are using human shields and they're firing from within civilian areas. Uh, so this uh, the the most recent <clears throat> sorry uh, the most recent uh, event in terms of uh, reporters embedding themselves and going across the border. Uh, it just kind of it points to the general issue about reporting coming out of Gaza and how much it falls in line with Hamas's preferred narrative. Uh, one other thing, not necessarily journalists, but there's UNRWA, the Palestinian Refugee Agency. They put out a um, a, a tweet talking about how people uh, reporting to be from the uh, Ministry of uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember which, but from the from the government uh, running uh, Gaza, which is Hamas. Uh, they came and they took uh, fuel and medical supplies uh, from an UNRWA facility. Uh, and so they complained about that. That would have been very damaging to Hamas. And very soon after that tweet was deleted and UNRWA issued something else instead. So just all the information that does come out of Gaza is coming out under Hamas's control. And so that's this most recent uh, episode is just a, a, a pretty good reminder of that. Yeah, it's a. It's fascinating. You know, we look, we we started mentioning, David, you let in with the, and I'm glad you did, you know, it's not just a physical war, but it's an information war. And, you know, it's a war that is really stacked against the Israelis. Um, Joe and I discussed this in a previous episode, and we touched on that again today. 
you know, it's it's it really is frustrating that the UN and the journalists, even though they know what's happening, they sort of continue to play the game in order to ensure their access within Gaza. And um, it would be nice to see some honesty from these groups for once, but I guess we can't expect it. Yeah, so, so before I was talking about uh, how, you know, everyone knows what we don't want. We don't want civilian casualties, obviously, uh, but we have to factor in the fact that Hamas is using human shields. What options do, does Israel have to protect its own civilians uh, without, unfortunately, killing Palestinian civilians along the way? I mean, this is war. It's not pretty and it's very unfortunate. It's uh, it's tragic how many Palestinians are dying. But when we don't ascribe the blame to its proper place, all it does is encourages Hamas to use human shields in the future. It's a winning strategy. The world is obliging Hamas in this. And so all it will do is encourage Hamas to do it in the future. Absolutely. Well said, David. David, thank you for joining us. Joe, thank you for joining us for today's episode of Generation Jihad. I hope to get you back on soon. Thank you. Thank you. All right, gentlemen, thanks again. Thanks everyone for listening to today's episode. Just a reminder, you could find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review, preferably a positive one, but only if we earned it. Thanks again, and we'll see you all again real soon.